The COVID-19 pandemic is not yet over and its impact on our lives continues. Young people have missed out on so many experiences and will they ever catch up? The rate of mental distress in the community has risen sharply. The economy was blown sideways and for many white collar workers, work from home has become part of a new normal. And of course, overshadowing all of this is the scale of death and long-term health damage caused by the virus. Worldwide, almost 7 million people have died according to official data, and that's clearly an underestimate. In Australia, there have been almost 19,000 COVID deaths to date. So it's in this context that we need to discuss the lockdowns that affected nearly all of us. Here in Narum or Melbourne, we were locked down for a total of 262 days. Was this a necessary step to save lives or was it authoritarian overreach? Why did the Victorian government respond so harshly and who paid the price? These and related questions are discussed in a timely new book by Chip Legrand. The book is simply titled Lockdown and it's published by Monash University Publishing. Chip is Chief Reporter at The Age in Melbourne and a Walkley Book Award winner and he joins us here today. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. So welcome, Chip. Hello, David. Look, congratulations on the book. I read it um, pretty quickly from end to end with real interest and I can see why you'd want to write about lockdown because it impacted so many of us for so long, particularly here in Melbourne, but in a lot of places around the country. But I wondered in particular why you decided to start the book with the sudden and very harsh lockdown of nine high-rise public housing towers in the inner suburbs of North Melbourne and Flemington. I suppose it's the uh, you know it's the the newspaper journalist in me, and that I mean to me it was just the most dramatic episode, and also the most egregious in terms of how our um, our public health response and the way it it really stripped people of of dignity and agency in how it responded to the pandemic. And, and if you and if you think back to those towers, it was the only it was the only time throughout the whole pandemic where. Uh, a significant community, and we're talking about 3,000 people who lived in the Nine Towers, they were given absolutely no notice uh, that they were going to be uh, locked in their uh, flats. They weren't giving any, until later on, they weren't given any opportunity to, to get any sort of fresh air to, to go outside. They weren't given time to get some provisions, to go to the chemist if they needed to, to make any sort of arrangements. It was, it was so sudden and so draconian Really, and um, and it's and as as uh, many of your listeners would know, it's, it's something where the, the Victorian Ombudsman looked into, and, and she found that it the uh, that it was unlawful that it breached the human rights of the tower residents. Those towers largely house migrant and refugee communities. Do you think the Victorian government would have tried that on if we were talking about a a series of blocks of units in Kew or Camberwell in the leafy east? Some ways, history history tells us that they wouldn't, because we there were other outbreaks in other high rise apartments. Um, there was a, there was an outbreak in a, in a in a fairly newly built high rise apartment a few blocks away from, say, the Alfred Street Tower in 
North Melbourne a bit later on in the pandemic, and, and we didn't have any kind of um, reaction like this. People weren't locked in their in their homes. Um, the problem with the the tower lockdown and 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 you know the ombudsman goes into this, but it was very much a police operation, whereas whereas it, it should have been a public health response. I mean, we didn't just lock people in their towers; we locked people in a tower where we knew there was COVID circulating. Yet we didn't provide them masks. We didn't provide them sufficient hand sanitizer. We actually didn't provide them the basic things that people needed to keep themselves well to stop them from getting the virus. And as you know, there was a lot of um, elderly people that live in those towers. There's a lot of uh, uh, people who are already in pretty poor health. So in, in all sorts of ways, it was a it was a pretty awful episode. One of your main arguments is that public health in Victoria had been starved of resources for years, ever since the Kennett era under a range of health ministers, which incidentally included Daniel Andrews. Just how bad was the situation when the pandemic broke? So the, the way I often start this is to, is to introduce people to, to Donna Cameron. So Donna Cameron, she, she was an infection control consultant who worked for the Department of Health. Now, you might think that an infection control consultant, they, so their job is to basically provide advice on on how to stop an infection spreading so you might think at the start of the pandemic that's a pretty important job and if we want to stop the the uh, the virus spreading in in um, sort of vulnerable settings that you need a lot of those people um, employed and, and deployed to, to, to provide that advice well Donna Cameron was the only infection con- control consultant who was employed by the uh, the DHHS she was employed part-time and so when, the, when the, the, the pandemic arrived, she had absolutely no chance to provide the kind of advice to the number of people and the number of institutions that, um, that she needed to. Another measure, if you want to look at it, is so the Health Protection Unit. This is basically the nub of our uh, response. This is the unit that was led by uh, Brett Sutton. You have your epidemiologists in there and so forth. Now, they had nine public health officers they were working, all working out of the one place, out of 50 Lonsdale Street, which is the headquarters of the health department. Now, by comparison, at the start of the pandemic, New South Wales had 15 public health units spread across Sydney and, and New South Wales. So we've got nine officers. They've got 15 units. We've all got a, a you know sizable team of people. So in military terms, it's like we began the war with, or New South Wales began the war with more battalions than Victoria had soldiers. And this, this was known to the government. I mean, Jenny McCarkos was the, was the health minister when the uh, pandemic began. And on January 29, she put in a submission to the Expenditure Review Committee of, um, of Cabinet, which is the, the group of um, senior ministers who decide what we're going to spend money on in the budget. And, and she described it this way. She said, quote, health protection service is our frontline defence against threats from the environment and communicable diseases and it is in disrepair. The government can no longer continue to protect Victorians and is exposing the community to unacceptable risks. So the government's health minister, and more broadly, most senior people in cabinet knew that Victoria was in all sorts of trouble uh, before even the um, we'd confirmed our first case. So that submission was what, 2019? This is two- January 2020. So just as the, the virus is emerging, uh, out of Wuhan, starting to spread into Italy. And as it happened, I think Victoria, the first case, walked into the Monash uh, Medical Centre on January 24. 
Is there a reason other than just long-term budget cuts why public health in Victoria was so run down? Well, the, the best reason that I can see in talking to a lot of people who work in public health, it's, it's really just the, it's the politics of health. I mean, you think about, and um, you know, newspapers are a good insight to that. You think about what, what makes for a front page a, a newspaper story uh, about um, health problems in the health system or indeed a, an influential story on, say, um, you know, commercial talkback radio. It's not about a lack of investment in public health, in preventable health. Um, it's not what we're failing to do in chronic diseases. It's things, it's much more to do with uh, problems in uh, waiting lists, in emergency departments, in acute health. The political focus is always on what we're doing and what we're not doing well in acute health. And, and we give so little attention to really the, 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 the kind of the bit of the iceberg that's below the waterline, which is the, which is the preventable health, the public health uh, piece. And in a lot of ways that, you know, that's, that's in the background of um, a lot of the discussions they're having at the moment in terms of how to try to reshape Medicare. Now, the core argument in the book, and it's one I welcome because it's essentially the same argument that Solidarity was trying to make at the time, uh, and we were fairly isolated on this issue, is that there was a third way between the false polarisation of lockdown and letting the virus rip. So do you want to take us through that argument? Yeah, so I, I see the, the, the big problem in our, in our strategy, and I should say it wasn't just Victoria's. I mean, this was, this was effectively the, uh, the Australian approach with the exception of New South Wales, was that once we embarked on, a, on an elimination strategy or this idea of, of COVID zero, because once you accept that zero cases is the only safe setting, in other words, it's either zero or you're on some sort of timeline to the, to the virus running out of control, then that's when you justify um, public health restrictions that would otherwise be disproportionate. So when you, you know, shutting all schools, when you have nightly curfews, when you have this kind of nonsensical five-kilometre rule, when you tape off playgrounds like their crime scenes, when you uh, you put, say, a, a regional town like Mildura, which hasn't had a case for the entire pandemic, and you put them into lockdown and they're hundreds of kilometres away from the, from the, from the nearest outbreak. This, this was all a, a consequence of this kind of COVID zero uh, mentality that adopted here where, where, where we just didn't trust our public health defences to contain the virus. I'd say that, say, at the start of the pandemic, given what we now know about the state of our public health, then perhaps that was justified. Like a lot of places around the world, we needed time. We needed time to, to get the equipment we needed, additional resources in, in hospitals, um, you know, set up COVID wards, set up our sort of quarantine systems, all this sort of thing. So I think there's a pretty good argument that a lockdown for a period of time to give us time to get ready was, was absolutely warranted. But in some ways, we were victims of our own success. Was because we, we uh, very nearly eradicated the virus that first time around with that, with that lockdown that we had at the start of the pandemic. That became the goal. And once that became the goal, I think that's where all the problems started. Now, we know in retrospect that hotel quarantine for people flying into Victoria was fatally flawed and led to the spread of COVID into working class homes and then from there on into aged care. It seems to me that the outbreak came at the intersection of some political duck shoving, the use of underpaid and undertrained security guards, and some really basic public health failures, including around the provision of masks, not dealing with ventilation issues and so on. Uh, is that how you see it? 
Yeah, look, I do. I see it as, a, as, a, as another way in which the focus really needed to be public health in, in, in a quarantine system. But we were trying to do some other things. You know, we, we, um, we knew we needed a system of quarantine, but also there was a, there was a strong sense, and this is from the, the Department of um, Jobs that was involved in the design of the, of the, of the quarantine, um, the hotel quarantine, that they wanted to, to somehow give hotels a source of revenue, keep people in work, keep hotel workers in, in work. And so they come up with this idea of, of um, uh, putting people in hotels. And the problem we had is that because we didn't prioritise public health, and again, we sort of tended to think of it more as a security operation than a, than a health operation, we didn't, do, we didn't follow the, the, the fundamental principle of quarantine. Whereas if you're in any sort of quarantine system, you have to assume that everyone who's coming into quarantine has the disease or, or has been exposed to whatever it is you're trying to contain. That's the whole point of quarantine. They're assumed to, to have the virus. And if you make that assumption, then your um, security guards and um, the people working on the in the lobby and the police that are transporting the um, people to the hotels and the airport, everyone who is involved in quarantine, everyone who is coming into contact with those people heading into quarantine, they have to be treated as at risk as anyone working in, say, a COVID ward in a hospital. Now, instead, we had a situation where to try to uh, uh, manage the distribution of masks and this sort of thing, we didn't even supply the security guards with, with basic masks. We didn't give them the training that they needed. We gave them the wrong advice about what they should and shouldn't do. We told them that they could hop in a lift without wearing a mask with someone who's just got off a plane that's going into quarantine. So we had these, uh, we decided to have these you know, security guards, and, and these are mainly people who've been working, you know, as nightclub bouncers or in crowd control or at public events or whatever, were paying $30 an hour, seeing to, to telling them to sit on a chair in a hotel corridor and bring their own masks. And that was, that was their duty of care that we show these people. So you know, knowing what we do about where um, who security guards tend to be, where they live, their their sort of family circumstance. I mean, it shouldn't surprise anyone that you had um, breakouts out of quarantine. Yeah, and uh, at the time, there was some really nasty stuff said about the security guards trying to put the blame back on them. But I mean, what you're saying is there was a systemic problem. It wasn't the case of you know, a, a security guard playing fast and loose with the rules is the system was set up to fail. No, I mean, look, we had examples where not all security guards followed every rule all the time. They were, they were fallible, but it, even if they had, even if they had followed to the letter the directions they were getting, they still would have got sick. Some of them still would have got sick. They still would have ta- got taken home to, to their families because the whole design of the of the um, of the program, but also the emphasis of the program, the, the the kind of the the absence of that 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 real real strong focus on public health that was missing. Because we saw with the um, it was notable that there was the what they call the hot hotels, which is where they put uh, people who were tested positive to the virus, so they knew they had it, and that was managed by Alfred Health. And and the difference between say the way Alfred Health was able to manage those hotels. Uh, compared to the other quarantine hotels was was light and day. My point is there shouldn't have been any difference because however you're approaching people who are known to have the virus should be the same way you're approaching, preaching, approaching people who are suspected to have the virus and that's why they're in quarantine. Mm. In fact, flying on from this, one of the insights from the book is how much the so-called scientific decisions were skewed by politics. 
So you tell us that under Victorian legislation, only the chief health officer or their delegates, who in this case included Deputy Chief Health Officer Annalisa Van Diemen, had the power to enact lockdowns. And you quote Premier Andrews saying, you can't argue with the science, you can't do anything but follow the best health advice. But you go through in some detail in relation to one of the lockdowns, and I'm quoting, in this instance, public health advice was retrofitted to a political decision already made. Journalists were on their way to the press conference before Van Diemen had read the final orders. So why was the state government, which talked about science, 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 bending the rules these ways? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. And, um, and before I answer, just a minute, a few more details about what went on that day, because it really is a, an important episode. So this goes back to the, to the Tower lockdown. Now, the public health advice, and this, this is from Annalise Van Diemen, who is the, the Deputy Chief Health Officer. Now, she wanted to give residents 36 hours to prepare. She didn't see that there was any health reason, public health imperative, to lock down the towers immediately. And this is what she told the government, and this is what she thought the plan was right up until about 1 o'clock on, on Saturday where we had a, a crisis committee of cabinet meeting, and they decided... So these are these are the, the, the sort of the handpicked ministers who are, who are who are running the government at that point. They decided without without consulting with Van Diemen that they were going to lock down the towers immediately. So as it turned out, she's emailed a draft of the public health orders and the human rights um, implications, which all run to you know dozens of pages, which she's expected to sign to make the to make the um, the intervention lawful. Um, she sent it at 3.46 p.m., when she's in the back seat of a car being driven to a press conference that's, that's, that's already announced where journalists are already waiting. So she said in her testimony to the Ombudsman, she felt she had absolutely no choice at that point than to, than to go along with her. Now, why, your question, why would, they, why would they respond this way? Well, I think the key event that happens is, is four days before this, four days before that decision, we had uh, Brett, Hutton, Brett Sutton, who's um, Annalise Van Diemen's boss, the chief of officer. He, in the morning, he emails uh, the, uh, the Premier's chief of staff and other people in the health response, a genomics report showing that Victoria's entire second wave epidemic had come from breaches in, in hotel quarantine. Now, this, that information, confirming what people already suspected, triggered the most serious political crisis the Andrews government had experienced probably before or since. Now, in response to that, you, you remember that's when we locked down the 10 uh, postcodes, of, uh, mostly, you know, um, fairly low socioeconomic areas, working class communities in the north and the west of the city. 300,000 people were ordered into lockdown. The government established the code inquiry, which would later look at the... At the, at the um, uh, the, the hotel quarantine. But really from that point, as soon as it knew that every case was linked back to the to the breach in quarantine, the government knew that the, that, that second wave epidemic would be framed as a failure of government, that they would be blamed for that. And that the only way to fix it would to be to bring us back down to zero. So I think that was the that was the event that really shaped the very hardline government response that we saw, certainly on that day with the decision on the towers, but then subsequently as that um, second wave continued. Mm. One of the things that should be surprising um, is the extent to which many uh, progressive people, people on the left, uh, progressive unionists and so on, 
fell into lockstep with the authoritarian response and it became almost a matter of pride for many progressive people to, uh, you know, sort of be as pro-lockdown as possible and to heap abuse on anybody and everybody who broke it in one way or the other. And a lot of that, I think, comes down to, well, partly the lack of public health preparation and partly the lack of trust in ordinary people. But you highlight towards the end of the book a quite different model Uh, And that's the model of Japan's response to the pandemic. You talk about Tokyo in particular. Tokyo's population is probably not that much different from the population of the whole of Australia. So we're not talking about a country town. Um, And you talk about the way that they avoided the pitfalls of authoritarian lockdown, but at the same time kept people safe and kept the level of infection and death very low. So what was the big difference between Japan and Melbourne? I mean, the, the, the Tokyo experience, I, mean, I just sort of stumbled across this in a way because I was, it, it was a bit surreal, actually, you know, in the middle of, the, um, of one of our lockdowns in 2021, I sort of got sent to the airport and jumped on a plane to go to cover the Olympics in Tokyo. And remember, I mean, Tokyo at, at that stage and Japan, that, that, the, the Delta outbreak had started, and, um, but they, you know, they'd made a promise that they were going to put on the games and they... And they um, stuck to it. So anyway, so you get off the plane there and you think, well, how are they going to do this? How are they going to manage, you know, uh, thousands of athletes and journalists and coaches and everyone else coming over um, from all around the world to put on this event in the middle of a, of a pandemic? And the, the interesting thing about it, Japan is that um, after the Second World War, when they um, sort of re-established the national government, they gave them the power to declare a state of emergency but it doesn't have any coercive powers to enforce it. So the Japanese government could, and the, and the local Tokyo municipality, they could tell people to stay home and they could tell businesses to shut, but they couldn't enforce it. So they just relied on people to, to, to follow the advice. And, and look, for the most part, they did. I mean, Japan had been through SARS. Um, they were well-versed in, uh, in, in sort of public health measures, in wearing masks and so forth. And, and so on a night in, in Japan, probably eight out of 10 places were closed. You could always find somewhere open to eat or to have a drink if you if you wanted to. For, for the most part, people ad- adhere to this. As a result, they were able to put on those games. There was a, there was a small spike in, in cases and it was concerning at the time, but in the end, it didn't lead to a, um, a, a, a catastrophic uh, loss of life. It certainly didn't lead to, the, to a, a, some sort of an uncontrolled epidemic and what it really showed to me was was the power of persuasion and public buy-in rather than uh, coercion and, and, and if you if you look back at the, the sort of the, the principles of, of public health they're embedded in this this idea that the people should have agency you need to you need to give people that agency to protect themselves and also uh, promote the common good and, and and I wonder now looking at say Australia's experience where Obviously, the, the, the virus is still circulating. Um, more, pi- more people are dying, have died in the last, say, few months than at previous uh, times in the, in the pandemic. And yet, our health, our public health measures are almost non-existent. People don't wear masks, even in, in say, a crowded um, train or whatever. Social distancing has completely gone out the window. So, so the sort of basic things that, that we could be doing had we been really um, given that sort of agency to, to, to take control of the response rather than waiting to be told by government what to do, 
I think that's a that's a real sort of opportunity missed because I don't see the same sort of public health um, culture here that say uh, countries like Japan and Taiwan and others developed after their SARS experience. Mm. And that's worth bearing in mind because there will be more pandemics, whether or not COVID gives us another surge. I was reading just the other day about bird flu, which is apparently running rampant in various parts of the world. And there's and it's jumped to a number of different species. Um, so it's just a warning that we're not talking about history. We're talking in some ways about preparing for the next pandemic. Now, lockdown was experienced very differently by different sections of Melbourne society. Affluent households where people could work from home who had space for the kids to play and so on didn't do too badly. But in the main working class suburbs to the north and west of the city, many people didn't have that option. And a high proportion, including those security guards and aged care workers, had no choice but to travel to do the essential work that kept society going. And they were greater risk from the virus, but they also suffered disproportionately from the lockdown in relation to fines, for instance. Indigenous people in particular uh, were proportionately hit quite hard by the fines. What did you find about this situation as you were researching the book? Well, if we go back again to the point that we made at the start about the, the centralisation of our public health and, and the way in which um, all the people that were responding to the, the pandemic and shaping our response you know, they were working out of the city. Um, they were politicians and, and, and public servants who don't live in these communities. And and I'd say really don't have much understanding of, of, of how these communities live. I remember there was there was one outbreak involving, it was the, I think it was the Afghan community um, in 2020. And Brett Sutton, who's done a lot of sort of aid work over the years, made a point of saying that he'd, he'd worked in Afghanistan before the inference being that somehow he'd have a bit of a connection with the with the um, Afghani people living in here, but, but of course the question is, well, that's fine, but have you actually been to Hallam? Because this, <laughs> the problem is that we, did, we didn't have our, uh, an understanding, a local knowledge, and and of these communities, and and local knowledge is everything when you're trying to figure out, okay, why is this virus spreading? You know, where are the where are the places that people are going? Going is it? You know, what's the relationship between say? This you know this childcare centre and this workplace and local community centres. Where are people gathering? Where is it likely to spread? Where do we actually have to need to be to be ahead of this thing rather than just reacting to um, you know confirmation two weeks after the fact that, that someone's got the virus? We we just didn't we just weren't embedded in those communities in the way that a good decentralised public health system needs to be. And to their credit, they, they're trying to do that now. I mean, they have set up local public health units they're they're kind of integrating it with say local um, hospital networks to try to get uh, to encourage people who live and work in a community to actually be part of that health response so we are trying to to do things better but i I think it was that that just that fundamental sort of disconnect between the people who live in the in the communities most vulnerable not just to the impacts of lockdown but the virus i mean these are people who who um, have greater comorbidities or at greater risk of, of getting seriously ill from from COVID. And, and we, we just didn't have a, a good understanding of these people. Instead, what we had was, um, you know, government officials at 11 o'clock press conference kind of wagging their fingers at these people and blaming them for the fact that the, that the virus is, um, is spreading. I mean, to me, it just sort of showed that we don't, to a large extent, we don't really have a great understanding of our own city. 
Now, this is something that goes beyond the book, so uh, I hope I'm not being unfair. The book didn't take up the political impact of lockdown in the federal election, and obviously you were published before the Victorian state election um, in November. We know there were big swings in both elections against Labour in the northern and western suburbs, exactly the areas we've just been talking about. As somebody who keeps their finger on the pulse of Melbourneers for their job, do you think this was at least in part payback for the lockdown? I frame it as payback. I think the the fascinating thing, and I'm, as it happens, I'm sort of writing about it at the moment, is the number of people who just stayed away from the election or who didn't participate in a meaningful way. So if you look at, say, voter turnout at the at the November election was the lowest that it's been since compulsory voting was introduced in the 1920s. We still had a really high informal vote um, count. If you put those two things together, informal voting and um, and people just not voting at all, you had close to one in five Victorians who played no meaningful part in the state election. Now, given that where jurisdiction has compulsory voting, that's that's a pretty high number. And if you look at where that was concentrated, it won't it won't surprise you. It's in it's in um, electorates like Broad Meadows, where uh, about thirty percent of people played no meaningful part in the election. The newly created seat of Greenvale, which is right next to Broad Meadows, includes Meadow Heights, you know, one of the most disadvantaged um, suburbs in in, in Melbourne, uh, Dandenong. In the west, so places like um, Laverton and Croyd, and and then in um, in Melton as well, uh, St Albans. So th- these are places where people just basically stayed away from the political process. Now there can be. I'm not suggesting this is all about um, COVID. It'll be multifactorial. The, the, these are these are places where generally uh, uh, turnout for vote tends to be a bit lower. But I certainly think. That COVID and the experience of, of lockdown, and particularly in these suburbs, that you know a lot of these places I just mentioned, they were the ones that were put under the the first lockdown when the postcodes were, were put under lockdown in um, in two thousand and twenty. I do think that it that it added that it fed into this um, sense of uh, disaffection and and um, and sort of estrangement from politics, and really a, a sense from from people who live there that look the politicians on from either, either of the major parties, they don't really get us. They don't understand our communities. They don't represent us. So I think that that estrangement's a, it's a serious problem because in a lot of ways, you know, the, these people um, that, live in, that live in these areas, they're the ones who are probably, uh, they need government services more than, say, people living in affluent suburbs in the, in the, in the, in the southeast. I mean, it's really important that they have their say in the political process. And so I think that's that's going to be an issue for this term of government to figure out how you can in- encourage that uh, participation democracy in some of these areas that were really hard hit by COVID. Thank you. It's been a really fascinating discussion and I suppose we're nearly out of time. I'd like to thank you again for joining us today. So in summing up, what went wrong in Victoria? And given there will be future pandemics, how should government and the health system respond next time around? Well, look, I, I, I'd like to start with a, a sort of a caveat, which is, which is that a lot went right here. 
I mean, it's it's of course we're we're sort of looking at the we're picking the eyes out of the problems in terms of the pandemic response. There were still plenty of things that went well. I mean, if, if you if you look, despite all the mistakes made, if you look at the the really strong public adherence to to public health restrictions, and and frankly, it was well beyond the point where you consider reasonable, but people stuck to it. Um, we were served brilliantly by um, the scientific community, acute health care. And look, the, and the upshot of all that was, was, was that relatively speaking, the first two years of the pandemic, very few people got sick and died from, from COVID here. So you have to say that, that from that point of view, there was a, that was actually a, a successful outcome. But the, but the biggest lesson, I think, from, the, from what went wrong is, is the need to uh, invest and also how we structure uh, public health. Because if we think not just about the next pandemic, but about our ongoing uh, health issues and, and the health of, of the sort of Victorian community, I mean, the, the, the people, the communities who needed the most protection from COVID are the same communities are now disproportionately affected by smoking disease and diabetes and um, obesity. In a lot of ways, how the, the more we can do to try to address those inequities in, in, in health outcomes in, in Victoria, um, the better place will be when the next pandemic comes along because it's, it's, it's all about that um, sort of approach to uh, preventative health. So a good place to start is, is, the, is, re, is significant reforms to, to Medicare um, to try to set it up so that uh, rather than being sort of just a, um, a billing system for seven-minute consults, it, it's really a, a way, uh, it's better set up to prevent chronic disease. And we need to keep decentralising our, our public health resources and actually put our, health, our resources in the places where they have the greatest demand, not in the suburbs where the health bureaucrats and politicians and, and, and journalists like me prefer to live. All right. On that note, I'd really like to thank you for your time today. It's been great. I recommend people to buy the book. Uh, it's a... a a really fascinating, a very straightforward read, very accessible, and it should be read widely. So thanks again, Chip. No worries. Thanks, Dave.